Hi, thanks for joining us. Welcome to the Antarctic Report podcast. I'm Nicholas O'Flaherty, editor of the Antarctic Report, an online portal dedicated to all things about Antarctica. Each week I talk to an outstanding scientist or adventurer, a writer, an historian, environmentalist, policymaker, people who actually work down on the ice itself. In fact, anyone with a real connection to Antarctica and a compelling story to tell. The Gambertsev Mountains, Antarctica. A mountain range with a Russian name the size of the European Alps. No human being has ever laid eyes on them. That's because they're totally buried beneath the mighty East Antarctic ice sheet. 600 metres in some places, but more than a kilometre in others. They are subglacial mountains. Mountains beneath the ice. Their highest point is 2,700 metres above sea level, yet not one single craggy peak sticks up above the ice sheet. The Gimbertsevs are the highest subglacial mountains in Antarctica, and the world. They're subglacial because where they're located beneath the centre of the East Antarctic ice sheet, the surface of the polar plateau reaches up to 4,000 metres in altitude at its highest point, Dome A. The invisible mountain range was first detected in 1958 by the Soviet Antarctic Expedition during their groundbreaking traverse from the Antarctic coast to the high polar plateau. Like other expeditions during that international geophysical year, the Russians used oil industry technology to try to get a measure of the thickness of the ice sheet beneath their feet. Every 80 kilometres or so, they drilled 40 metre holes and laid geophones, sensitive recording devices, into the ice sheet. Then they'd set off a small explosive charge. The return echo, bouncing off the bedrock below, would be recorded by the geophone, giving a measure of the thickness of the ice sheet at that particular point. The thinking had been that Antarctic bedrock must resemble the glaciated landscape of other parts of the world that had experienced massive ice sheets in the past. Think, for example, of much of Canada today, which sat for thousands of years beneath the Laurentide ice sheet during the last ice age. However, what the Russians found in East Antarctica surprised them. The returning echoes revealed the sketchy outline of a mountainous range encased within the ice. In honour of the leading Russian seismologist, Grigory Gimbertsev, who had died in 1955, the Soviets named the newly discovered range the Gimbertsev Mountains. Since then, our knowledge of the Gimbertsev Mountains has increased significantly. Antarctica's largest subglacial lake, Lake Vostok, lies within its foothills. Today, scientists believe the Gimbertsev Mountains are one of the key nucleation points around which the Antarctic ice sheet first started to expand more than 30 million years ago. This week in our podcast... We speak to Professor Robin Bell, a geophysicist at the Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory of Columbia University, New York. Robin Bell led a major multinational expedition to Antarctica in 2008 to further explore the Gambertsev mountain range. The findings from that expedition were a huge leap forward in our understanding of this important yet previously little-known region of Antarctica. Robin Bell, welcome to the Antarctic Report. It's my pleasure to talk with you today. Tell us what it is that you do. Um, I'm a geophysicist. That means I use geophysics to understand how the planet works. And some people use it to understand how the plates move and how earthquakes happen. I use it to understand how ice sheets work. And where are you currently working? 
Currently, I work at Lamont Dirty Earth Observatory. It's part of Columbia University, and we're just outside of New York City. You had quite a key role in coordinating some of the major science activities around the 2007 International Poly Year. Before we sort of dig into specifics about your career, tell us a little bit about what you, what you think some of the major successes of that from that year were. Oh, the International Polar Year was a wonderful chance for the science community to get together and go places and do things that individual nations couldn't have done on their own. And some of the wonderful outcomes were the organization of the young scientists, the self-organization and the building of a uh, basically a group that supports and advocates for young scientists working in polar regions called APEX. So that was one of the brilliant you know, never predicted outcomes. And one of the highlights in Antarctica really was the return to the Gimberts of Mountains, a place that people hadn't been since the 1950s. You have frequently been involved in, in quite a senior level in a number of aerogeophysical expeditions in Antarctica. Can you tell us, first of all, what is it that these aerogeophysical expeditions do? Well, when you go to Antarctica and you stand on top of the ice sheet, it looks very much like you've landed on top of a pile of ice cream and you can't see a thing. It's flat and white. It's vanilla ice cream. It's flat and white in every direction. But what you're really keen to know is how the ice sheet is put together and what's underneath it. Driving a snow machine across, it's pretty slow, but if you can fly... And you can learn pretty quickly. You can go, you know, a couple hundred kilometers an hour, and you can look through the ice sheet. You can send radar waves through it, measure the structure of the ice sheet itself. You can measure the shape of the mountains beneath it or the topography. You can figure out if there's water down there. And then you do things like you measure the strength of the gravity field to figure out what the rocks are made of, or you measure them Earth's magnetic field to figure out, again, are there volcanoes there? Are the rocks very rich in iron? So we, it's, everyone geophysics lets you look beneath that flat white surface and understand the structure of the ice and the structure of the underlying rocks. Yeah, could you tell us a little bit about the history of the, the research that attempted to penetrate beneath the ice sheet? People first started using radar, yeah? Uh, and that would have been, how, how long ago would that have been? Oh, isn't it? The people first started using radar in the 1960s. Yeah. There were a lot of programs, traverses driving across the ice sheet, and they figured out that they could use radar technology, sort of something in the 150 megahertz range, to send energy through the ice sheet and wait for the echoes. The very first programs, they just sat with an oscilloscope and they'd send out a pulse, and then they'd look to see when they saw the return on the oscilloscope, and they'd write the number down. I actually wrote a paper once where I had my daughter go through an old notebook and write all those numbers down so we could see what the topography looked like and if there was a lake, because nobody had ever actually taken the numbers from the notebook and put them on a map. But that's what they did at first, was look at an oscilloscope, and then they realized they could make it look more like a cross-section, kind of like what you see in a seismic section used to look for oil and gas, only the structures are in the ice instead of in uh, more classic rocks like sandstone or shale. 
So, so in the early days, say back in the 60s, we're talking about vehicles, tractors driving across the top of the ice sheet. Mm-hmm. And they would they drag these little they drag an antenna behind them, and then somebody would sit in a little usually a little wooden shed on skis being dragged behind the traverse vehicle, and they would look at the oscilloscope and write down the numbers every so often. So it was back in the sixties that we first started to discover the enormous depths of the ice sheet. Well, actually, we, we discovered the enormous depths of the ice sheets during the last international polar year in 1958 mm-hmm. when we used seismics instead of radar. We actually shot off explosives. And instead of waiting for the return of the um, radar wave, we waited for the return of the seismic energy. Okay. And that's when we first discovered how deep the ice was and also how thin it was over the Gamberts of Mountains. We progressed from seismic to, to radar, and at what stage did we start using planes? The real effort to use planes were in the 1970s. It was a joint effort between um, the science program, the um, Danish program, the Technical University of Denmark, and the British Antarctic Survey. And they started to use the 130s and fly around the continent using radar, gravity, and magnetics to look at the... Um, structure of the ice sheet. So your first involvement in an aerogeophysical expedition, when, when was your, what, what year did you first take part in one of these, Robin? My first expedition to Antarctica was actually, we flew over it, we didn't actually land, we were in a P3 and it was in 1985. So the Gambits of Mountains, yeah, they were discovered first by the, the Russians? Right, during the International Geophysical Year when they drove a traverse across it. Right, and um, so they discovered these mountains, which are, uh, you know, the highest peak, I think, is two, over 2,000 metres, yeah, above sea level, that is. It's closer to 3,000 metres, actually. The summits of these mountains are situated beneath how many metres of ice? Probably the, the, the somewhere between 600 and a couple thousand meters of ice cover the Gimberts of Mountains. Yeah, they are the highest peaks that are completely covered by ice. Absolutely. The the Gimberts of Mountains are 3,000 meters high, and they are totally covered with ice, and they are the tallest ice-covered mountains on our planet. Every other mountain manages to stick its nose out Right. Beneath ice, but not the Gimbertses. Back in the let, let's race forward in terms of your involvement. What year were you part of an expedition that set out to survey better that region of the Gambits of Mountains beneath the East Antarctic ice sheet? Um, it was two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Where so basically we went down in the end of two thousand eight and returned to the end of January in two thousand nine. Right, and what did what did it involve? It involves uh, several years of planning, trying to get all the ducks in a row. It involved two field camps, one on either side of the mountain range, one on the north side at 3,500 meters on the ice sheet, uh, close to, well, not close, on the north side towards the Australian station that was supported by... Uh, four C-17s airdropping fuel to it 
and then a second field camp at 3,500 meters on the south side of Dome A that was supported by C-130s bringing in fuel. So it was two major field camps, but with a very narrow window of operation where the temperatures were sufficiently warm that you could really have people and aircraft work. These field stations, that's quite an altitude, isn't it? You you were at these field camps. Did you initially have problems like breathing and all their usual high-altitude uh, issues? Um, when we worked at Vostok, the team that went had significant problems, and it's at a similar 3,500 metres above sea level. So we were very careful. Uh, we didn't want to have a rerun of the multiple medevacs that we had from Vostok. So everyone uh, went actually went to South Pole first and sat for up to a week at South Pole getting acclimatized because South Pole is high enough that your body can adjust. It starts to kick in all the new red blood cells you need to operate at that elevation. And then people moved on to the high altitude camps, and but then were at least 48 hours where they didn't do much work as their bodies finished acclimatizing. Right. And we watched everybody's blood oxygen very carefully. Planes were able to land at these camps? Yes, there were, there were skiways at both camps. Um, the, the southern camp, you, uh, there was a two-mile-long skiway where you can land a ski-equipped C-130. And at the southern camp, there was a shorter... And the northern camp, there was a shorter runway where... Um, you could land Baslers and Twin Otters. And the actual aircraft that was doing the, the survey, what was was that a Basler or a Twin Otter? What was that? Um, the survey was actually done by two Otters, one um, supported by the U.S. program, a Canadian Twin Otter. Um, and the second aircraft doing the survey was a British Twin Otter, supported by the British Antarctic Survey. So we had two almost identical aircraft with two almost identical equipment. Yeah. Fleets on them, right. flying from the two camps. And so you were in these planes, basically just going up and down, getting a read of the rock beneath the ice sheet. Right. Um, we pretty much had the planes once we got there and got everybody acclimatized and the weather opened up. We pretty much kept the planes in the air 24 hours a day. We would A plane would take off, um, fly for our the U.S. Twin Otter could fly for six hours, fly for six hours, it would land. We would take off the hard disks, put in new hard disks, put in new science crew, and it would take off to fly for another six hour, five to six hour mission. Um, we had two sets of pilots for, at each camp so that we could pretty much run night and day because we only had about three weeks to fly this large area. Remind me again, you're using a combination of scientific techniques. You, you're using radar primarily, but you're also using gravity? Right. We used radar to measure how thick the ice was and how tall the mountains were and where there was water. And then we used magnetics to look to see if there were any volcanoes and gravity to tell us what the rock type was of the mountains and how they might have been formed. At the end of this expedition, the leap in our knowledge of the gambits of mountain range would have been no doubt exponential. We went from what this this hazy this hazy sense of what was beneath to to what a pretty good uh, map of the bedrock beneath the ice sheet. Yep, we went from basically being a blob on the map that you knew that there was a lump there to something where we. You look at it now and you can actually see the beautiful river valleys. It makes you want to think, maybe I should go hiking there or possibly skiing in those spectacular valleys. Right. Um, 
even though you can't because of the ice that's there. But sure. we did take an exponential leap in terms of our knowledge of East Antarctica. A number of fascinating things were discerned or discovered, weren't they, as a result of the survey? And we'll get onto those in a minute. Can I just ask you, Robin, when was, at some stage, the summits of those mountains would not have been covered with ice, presumably? How long ago are we talking about? The Gamberts of Mountains likely have not stuck their peaks out of the ice for about 30 million years, probably 34 million years before the... They were some of the first pieces of Antarctica covered with ice when our planet went from a hothouse world to an icehouse world. So about 30-something million years ago. Probably 34 million years ago. 34, okay. You discovered something interesting about the behaviour of water beneath the ice sheet in that area under a lot of pressure, no doubt? Well, one of the fascinating discoveries was that there was water in all these river valleys in the Gamberts of Mountains Mm -hmm. because the ice is so thick that the ice is close to the melting point at the bottom of the ice sheet. But what was even more remarkable was the discovery that the water was be- in some parts was being driven uphill and refreezing back onto the bottom of the ice sheet. So in fact, the ice sheet, instead of thickening from the top by snowflakes falling on it, was actually thickening from freezing on the bottom in these large bodies of ice that we could track for tens of kilometers came to focus at the end of the expedition. So under the ice sheet, the, the pressure is so much higher, and that means that the freezing point, the temperature for freezing is much lower. Is that, is that how it works? Nope. Okay, right. I'm wrong. Tell <laughs> Beneath us. the ice sheet, we always, I, I always thought it was... <laughs> Beneath the ice sheet, I always thought it was going to be the pressure that had the big impact, but it actually turns out that the bigger impact is the fact that the ice sheet's being warmed from the below, just like if you were to have a geothermal heat system in your house. Yeah. That geothermal heat is warming the bottom of the ice sheet. So the bottom of the ice sheet is close to, when it gets to be two kilometers, three kilometers thick, is close to minus two degrees C. Uh-huh. Even though if we put a thermometer in at the top of the Gamberts of Mountains, it would be read minus 50. At the bottom, if we could get a thermometer there, it's about minus 2C. I mean, how, how active is the bedrock beneath in terms of, are we talking about, we're not talking about volcanology, we're talking about just natural heat from the bedrock. No, this is just background heat. We don't need any exciting you know, volcanoes under there to make this heat. This happens all over East Antarctica, which is kind of a, in general, an old stable craton. Think Australia. Yeah, yeah. Okay. There being really lots of volcanoes or high heat flow in, in Australia. So that discovery that opens up lots of other doors, doesn't it? Because it hadn't the th- thinking been that the deeper you drill, the older the ice is. Yeah. So all this, the, the ice core drillings, which are telling us so much about the nature of the atmosphere going back in time. Yeah. They, they capture air bubbles. So that thinking about the deeper you go, the older the ice gets, to, a deg- to, to some degree, that discovery that you made in the Gambits of Mountains, that upsets a little bit that uh, thinking. Is that correct? Right. It does mean that in some places the youngest ice is at the bottom of the ice because it was formed recently. But it also means that our concept of the ice sheet being a nice layered structure is not always applicable, that sometimes you have very complex features at the bottom of the ice sheet. 
So it's not just the age, but it's also its basic fabric and how it's structured. The hydrological system, how extensive is it? You said you discovered water beneath the gambits of mountains, and in some cases it was flowing uphill. How interconnected were the water systems? Were they isolated pockets, or in fact was there a lot of connectivity of the different pockets of water beneath the ice sheet? Um, we wish we knew all those questions, but even though we forward hugely with our data set, we only have data every five kilometers. So if you could just imagine how little streams uh, meander in a mountain range, we're pretty sure that the streams in the Gambert's extend for probably... 100 or so kilometers, but we can't track every flow because we have a hard time with only five kilometer space data Yeah, okay. to actually see. So we, we know a lot more, but we don't know. Um, I picture it being a, the system is kind of like a braided network in beneath us. I picture the Gimberts of Mountains have water systems kind of like what you'd see in a glacial valley, maybe on the southern island of New Zealand. Do you think there will be uh, an expedition that will further enhance our knowledge of the bedrock in that area? Oh, the next thing to do in the Gamberts of Mountains is to go back there with a drill and do two things. Drill one of these big thousand meter thick units of refrozen ice, so the rivers where they've frozen back onto the bottom of the ice sheet, and also to sample the bedrock to find out what, what's it made of and how old it is. So those are the next really exciting things that would happen in the Gimberts of Mountains. For a mountain range to have so much ice on top of it, there must be very rounded, glaciated rock forms. But how would you describe the shape of the mountain range? Oh, that was one of the big surprises. As we thought these would be really rounded mountain ranges, like you'd expect to see underneath something... Um, they had been covered with ice for 35 million years, but they were very sharp and pointed. And it turns out if you look at the um, how rough they are, they look like a much younger mountain range, not like something that's been underneath ice for so long. So it looks like they were actually snap frozen when it happened. And they weren't actually eroded. So one of those exciting things that you can actually preserve a mountain range by wrapping it up wow. in ice okay. if you do it fast enough. So even though we have a huge weight of ice above it and no doubt moving around it and creating a lot of force, the ice has actually frozen it and solidified the, the mountain range. Yeah, is that what you're saying? Yep, that's what I'm saying. Okay. Right. And it's possible that this the refreezing is another way to wrap the ice sheet up. It's possible that the refreezing is a way to wrap the mountain range in soft ice and keep it from getting beat up. In some ways too, do you think the mountain ranges in general add to the stability of the ice sheet? Well, an ice sheet that is um, high up is more stable than a sheet that sits in an ocean. So the Gamberts of Mountains are part of why East Antarctica is generally considered more stable than West Antarctica. West Antarctica, where the Rosetta Project is focused, is sitting on a shallow ocean. So it is 
less stable. You are currently involved in the Rosetta program. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Well, the Rosetta program is a major international program who that where we're partnering with GNS in New Zealand to understand the structure and stability of the Ross ice shelf. And again, we're using airborne geophysics, mm-hmm. only this time from an LC-130, so a ski-equipped aircraft, the same kind that fly out of Christchurch to take people to Antarctica. And we're flying back and forth over the ice shelf to understand where it's melting, where it's freezing, and what's the bathymetry underneath the ice shelf so we know where warming water will reach the edge of the ice shelf. And how many seasons have we got to go? Well, we've done two field seasons, and it looks like we'll probably need to do one more to finish. Last year, the weather was just so bad that we didn't get enough done. So we're hoping for one more field season to finish up. And from the data that's been obtained so far, anything interesting to report? Oh, we see the water. In some places, the the water is much deeper than we thought, and there's some places we think the water is much shallower. And right now I have plots on my computer about where it looks like we can see melting and freezing. So we're pretty excited that we're going to be able to understand how the Ross Ice Shelf works and how stable it is and how it will respond in the future as the planet changes. The ocean currents presumably uh, go underneath the Ross Ice Shelf. Uh, do, do we know much more about the movement of the, the water? So one of the wonderful things we did this year was actually to air deploy some floats that we basically slid out of the back of the airplane, kind of frightening to throw your sensitive equipment out of the back of an airplane. And they landed in front of the Ross Ice Shelf, and they've been going up and down and phoning home every one to seven days. We've now turned them off for the winter, but or we've parked them for the winter, and hope they'll come back in the spring. And we've been able to see where uh, there's water that can reach underneath the ice shelf, how the surface ocean mixes, and we can actually see melted Ross ice shelf water coming out into the Ross Sea. So we're learning a lot by looking at the ocean as well as the ice shelf. You have been involved in a number of aerogeophysical expeditions. You have discovered a volcano beneath the West Antarctic ice sheet. Is that correct? That is correct. We're part of a team that who an active volcano beneath the West Antarctic ice sheet. The real surprise was it was a classic last flight of the season and the team came back from the airplane and said, we just saw a big hole in the ice sheet and had a giant magnetic anomaly in the real peaky thing underneath. And when we put all the data together, we realized that, there, yes, there was a hole on top of this high magnetic anomaly, which also had the peak, but it, it extend, the hole was bigger than the peak, which meant that you had to be removing ice from the bottom. So we were able to figure out that this volcano was actually active because the only way you can remove ice from the bottom is to have really high heat flow. If there's a volcano bubbling away beneath an ice sheet, to the layman it does sound extraordinary that the ice sheet is still able to maintain a closed roof of ice above such a seemingly hot temperature. We now know that in some places, volcanoes kind of pop their peaks out when they go into a very active phase. 
past, but right now it's it's not clear that this volcano has ever done that. The ones that are around the edge of the Western Antarctica sheet clearly are exposed now, and there's evidence that other ones have, shall we say, blown their tops on occasion. But it's not clear that this one has right now, and it's probably not enough to make the ice sheet collapse. There's lots of other things happening around the edge that are probably more important for whether or not the ice sheet comes or goes. You've also detected a number of subglacial lakes. How big have some of these lakes been? Oh, lakes are pretty big in Antarctica. The uh, Lake Vostok's the biggest. Um, it's a couple hundred kilometers long, 70 kilometers across, and has a at least a thousand meters of water in it at the deepest point. Um, there are other lakes um, just over the ice divide that are, are not quite as big, but are similar depths to Lake Vostok. So there, uh, Antarctica, like any continent, is has lots of basins, sort of valleys where water can c- collect. And in those valleys are now water. Most of the ice that comes off the ice sheet to form the Ross Ice Shelf, it's a combination of both East Antarctica and West Antarctica, isn't it? Because it's in that sort of triangular position, yeah? Yes. At the point where the Ross Ice Shelf, the grounding line of the Ross Ice Shelf, meets the West Antarctic Ice Sheet, presumably there's parts of that bedrock of the grounding line that are below sea level. Mm-hmm. Yes. In some cases, we know that the bedrock actually behind the grounding line is act even deeper, isn't it? It's even further below sea level. Do, do we have a sense of how the, I guess, how the, the water moves beneath the ice sheet at that point and how stable it is? Do we, do we have a better understanding of the dynamics there? Well, that's really what we're after next. And one of the big targets for the science community is to understand how deep the ice is and how deep the bedrock is close to the grounding line so that we can understand the stability of the ice sheet in the future. Yeah. Then basically where the water is going close to the grounding line and how stable the ice sheet is. The ocean, the seawater at that point of the grounding line, uh, let's say let's say where the Ross Ice Shelf grounding line meets the West Antarctic Ice Sheet and parts of it are below sea level, the bedrock, does some seawater seep beneath the ice sheet? Can you explain that at all, or is that still an unknown? Well, the real important interface at the grounding line is it's where an ice sheet goes afloat. And what really matters is how warming ocean water will reach that intersection. It's kind of like a, a junction on the road. And some of the water may seep in, but really what's most important is whether or not you're delivering more heat to that very critical bottom of the ice sheet. It's kind of like whether or not you're being made less stable by having somebody chew away on what you're standing on. Okay, and that's part of what the Rosetta program is trying to achieve. Yes, that's what we're after is how stable is the Western Antarctic ice sheet and how it will respond to a warming world. Robin, you've been involved with the National Science Foundation of the United States. Uh, You're part of a team that is looking at articulating a long-term strategic vision for the United States Antarctic program. Oh, with the um, National Academy has written the report and released it. And the top priority really is understanding the stability of the West Antarctic Ice Sheet because it is clear that we as a 
species need to understand how fast the West Antarctic ice sheet will change in the future so we can tell our coastal communities how much sea level will go up. So the number one priority is understanding the stability of the ice sheet. That is driven primarily from a climate change science perspective. It was a very interesting study because we also had everybody from biologists to astrophysicists and high on the list were understanding how life adapts to the cold and a small question of how did the universe begin. But the entire cross-disciplinary panel concluded that the most important question was what's the future of the ice sheet? It didn't matter whether you studied neutrinos or um, ice or fish, really, the stability ice sheet is the number one problem on the table. Do you want to give us your perspective as a geophysicist? In recent time, in the last decade, we've had data coming out from studies around Thwaites and Pine Island Glacier, etc., that there's been an acceleration in the movement of the glaciers coming off the West Antarctic ice sheet in that particular area, yeah? Suggesting that the ice sheet is the ice sheet is moving faster and thinning fast. Do you have a, any perspective on that? In the last decade, we as a species have been very lucky because we have really gone to where we have a global view of what's happening to the plumbing on our planet. And it's become very clear that the ice sheets are changing faster than we had thought it was possible. And our real goal in the coming decades is to understand how fast they will change in the future. In the current times, Robin, have we arrived at a point where climate change is settled and funding for climate change science is relatively secure? Or are we living in uncertain times from that point of view? It's still clear that the science says the climate is changing. It is less clear that we have the political will to address it. Or at this point, it's still an ongoing battle to ensure that climate science is funded and that we have the intellectual resources we need to be good residents of this planet. And that's what, um, that's what science provides us, is the knowledge of how the planet works. So it's, a, it's an ongoing struggle, I have to say. One final question, Robin. If you had any advice to someone, say, who was uh, maybe still at the last the last year of high school, was thinking about a career in science around climate change and Antarctic science, do you have any words of advice? Oh, I think they should embrace it. It's a marvelous job. It's a marvelous thing to do work on understanding how our planet works. It's a beautiful place to work, and it's a really important place to work. All right, Robin. Hey, thank you very much for being with us today. That was very, very interesting. All righty. Thank you very much, Nick. That was Professor Robin Bell of Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory, Columbia University, New York. If you'd like to know more about the Gimbets of Mountains or Project Rosetta, Check out the episode notes on AntarcticReport.com where you'll find more weekly episodes of the Antarctic Report podcast. We'd love to hear from you. 
If you have a question or comment, email us at info at antarcticreport.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Antarctic Report. If you like what we do, you can review the podcast on iTunes. You'll be helping others to find us. Thanks for listening to the Antarctic Report podcast. See you next time. Thank you.